Hi, and welcome to The Rock's podcast. We are currently going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We pray that these sermons encourage your faith. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we continue studying the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, it's time to get started again. Good morning, good morning. Hey, there's nothing like a happy, happy church. It takes a while. All right, we're going to settle down now, find a seat, and then I'm going to ask the Lord for his blessing. So, ready to get underway? Here we go. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being here. We thank you, Father, as Christ taught us that where two or three gather together, there you are in the middle of it all. And so, we pause, Lord, to... Uh, acknowledge your presence here among us and ask for your guidance by the Holy Spirit who sent into our hearts to teach us the truth, to explain things to us, to help us to understand, to enable us to put these things into practice so that we could be blessed. Now, as we consider, Lord, your suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane and that uh, turmoil that you went through on our behalf. Help us see something new and fresh, God, that impacts the way we live for you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, as most of you know, I grew up in New England, a small town in the suburbs. Uh, An apple orchard uh, was nearby our home, and that orchard used to hire high schoolers in the fall to pick apples, and I have fond memories of being employed there a couple falls, and uh, just, uh, you know, as fun as it was, it was a lot harder and more work than I realized, that's for sure, Uh, but there I was making $2.10 an hour, which was minimum wage in 1975, and lots of apple throwing contests with the uh, unusable apples, of course, and definitely able to munch down on those wonderful apples. And just let me tell you that honey crisp grown apples from New England have no rivals out there, including Sebastopol. I'm sorry. Although, by that reaction, I love Sebastopol and all the apples that come from there. Now, moving on. Now, for for me, and to this day, I find orchards, in a general way, very appealing. I like them. I like to uh, walk along the beach or a snowy mountain trail or a walk through a beautiful orchard with fruit-laden trees. That's the same kind of deal for me. I can understand why Jesus loved orchards so much. He spent a lot of time there with his disciples. In John chapter 18, it says that that was their usual hangout. He and his disciples liked to meet there on the Mount of Olives, and which is, of course, named for its prolific olive groves. And the olive groves kind of provide a solitude and peace and a, a little retreat, you know, maybe under those big uh, branches. I've got a picture, you know, just to help us out there. You know, it gets hot over there in the summer, and it's kind of nice to have some shade. And the disciples and Jesus had a favorite place there, and they would meet there, and he would teach them, and they would spend time together and laugh and pray together. That was their favorite place to be, the Bible tells us. And so that fateful Thursday of Passion Week, right, um, toward the evening in Mark chapter 14, uh, the Lord and his disciples enjoy their last supper together. 
the Passover meal, uh, it was time for Jesus to get to work and to do what he came to do and what he had been announcing over and over again that was going to happen, that he would willingly lay down his life for the sins of the world. And it was now Thursday of Passion Week. In other words, 12 hours from ground zero, the cross. And so uh, let me give you some context, then we'll dive in. Um, Passion Week began with Palm Sunday, when in fulfillment to Zechariah's prophecy, he announces that he is truly the king of Israel, riding in um, in peace on uh, a donkey. And so on Monday of Passion Week, the Lord goes into the temple and uh, cleanses it uh, as it's called and just drives out all the bad guys and gets rid of all the corrupt people in there. On Tuesday, uh, he's in the courts there at the temple and he is teaching and confronting the hostile uh, opponents, the Pharisees, the Sadducees come with all their trick questions. That happens on Tuesday. Now, on Tuesday evening, he talks about the end of the world and he's fielding questions from his disciples, where? In the garden. That's why that's called the Olivet Discourse, meaning the sermon the Lord gave from the Mount of Olives, right? And so he talks about the signs of his second coming uh, from underneath the olive grove there. And so that is uh, now, now it is Thursday night. It's Passover. Well, they're celebrating Passover. Passover's technically Friday, but if you are busy and unable to have the meal on Friday, it's written in the law, you could have it early. Well, Jesus is busy on Friday because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so on Thursday night, they have the meal. And the Lord says, hey, it's time for a new covenant. He talks about his blood. He makes the connection between the Passover lamb and himself as being the permanent remedy for sin. And he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He talks about what's great in God's sight is humility and serving others. There at that table, the Last Supper. And it's at that supper that he outs Judas. And he tells Judas, friend, go do the deed that you have your heart set on. And he's in full control. And he warns the disciples to watch and pray. And Jesus pipes up. Jesus, Peter pipes up to Jesus and says, even if everybody uh, forsakes you, I will never forsake you, even unto death. And the Lord has to tell him, listen, Peter, tonight, even before you hear the cock-a-doodle-doo, cock you're gonna deny even knowing me. Uh, and he said, in fact, you will all desert me, all of you. But the, everybody was saying the same thing as Peter. That's the last verse before the garden verse. They're talking and having this conversation as they're going up to the grove. They enter the garden, and this happens. They went to a place called Gethsemane, the name of the garden grove there. And Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, if it's possible, the hour might pass from him. Uh, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for, with me one hour? Verse 38. Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. It's the middle of the night. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man 
is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Goes on, rise, get up, let's go. Here comes my betrayer, just as he was speaking. Judas, one of the 12 appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged the signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near, we are, uh, the other guys outed him, it's Peter. Then one of those standing near Peter drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with your swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled, just as he had told them in the preceding Verses. So we're going to take a look at this. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, but every time you go to the Garden of Gethsemane in these passages, it just feels like you're on holy ground. I mean, it's the highest drama. It's the greatest emotion. It's the most profound observations in any place in the scriptures to see the Son of God bear his soul and to show this kind of anguish, to hear the Son of God crying out for mercy, man, I mean, it's riveting. It just is riveting for us. And it's not, God doesn't use this to weaponize it for guilt. God uses this account to show us his great love for us, our security in him, our great worth and value. And when we see Jesus willingly bearing this kind of anguish, it's prompted for love for you and me. And so there's all kinds of wonderful fruit and benefits from us going through the uncomfortable uh, scene of seeing someone we love so much, the Lord Jesus Christ, suffering in such a a terrifying uh, way. And so uh, John calls it a garden, and so we know it had walls. And so if we get past the gate, you know, we're going to take in this breathtaking scene in three ways. First, we see Jesus praying, verses 32 to 36. Then in 37 to 42, we see the disciples sleeping And then closing up with a few verses, we see Judas betraying. So note takers, Jesus is praying. The disciples are dozing off and Judas is betraying the son of God. So let's isolate. Let's get underway with the first point. Jesus is praying. So he picks a familiar favorite place to enjoy his last few earthly human moments there before his death and resurrection uh, with his beloved disciples um, before he's going to be uh, arrested and then taken away. And he's, it, he chose that it be the garden there uh, for, for before he is hauled off and interrogated throughout the night in a mock kangaroo court there at the Sanhedrin all night long. And at dawn, he's moved over to to go see Pilate and then Pilate from about 6.30 in the morning, 7 a.m. until 9 o'clock when he lays down on that cross. And I do say he was not forced down on that cross. He said, no one takes the life of the Son of God. He says, I willingly lay down my life for the sheep. That's out of love. That's what I do. That's what I came for. Jesus was not killed for his good work. It was his good work to be killed. Before the foundations of this earth were spinning around, the Lamb of God was slain. It was already in the heart of God. It was already in the plan of God. So this isn't like something went wrong and the bad guys are winning. No, the Lord is in full 
control. Now, the, this is the part that helps us, uh, it doesn't help us, it kind of hinders us from understanding the balance of who Jesus is and how he suffered there in the garden. I want to suggest to you that as we see this agony in this passage right here in front of you, is, is that the Lord God is fully man and fully God. He's born of a woman. He's 100% one of us. But he did not have a human father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so that makes him what we call the God-man. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says that even though he was equal to God in every way, he did not use that fact to, to take it. He did not take advantage of that fact, but rather he emptied himself, making himself a servant, a slave, taking on the likeness of human flesh. And so he is going to do his offering, his sacrifice, 100% as a human being. And so the fact that he is the Lord, the second person of the Godhead, he is very God of very God, and that he knows what's coming down, he's already told them three times. We're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, they're going to pluck my beard out. They're going to beat me. And then they're going to crucify me. And on the third day, I will rise. He knows this. But it doesn't mitigate the terror. It doesn't soften it. He knows what's going to happen. He's in charge. But he's a human being as well as fully God. And as a human being, come on. We have fears, or we have anxiety, we get lonely, we're tired, we're stressed out, uh, we're vulnerable, we need rest. And within every human heart is the innate desire to survive. And if you know something terrible is going to happen as a human being, you're going to try to get around it or, or, or find a way of escape. It's not sin. It's part of being a human being. And Jesus Christ, though he was God, he was the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, Hebrews chapter one and verse three, the fullness of God in a human body, Colossians chapter two and verse nine. Even though all of that, he had human emotions. And all of these things did not um, mitigate the terror that he feels here. So he empties himself now, and um, we begin with him uh, alerting the guys that he feels terror. He feels terrorized to death. In fact, uh, the word deeply distressed means to be struck with terror, to be gravely astounded and alarmed. Deeply troubled there in your text, it means weighted down with grief, crushing depression. He's saying, I'm so stressed out, I could die. It's killing me. I feel like I'm dying. This is what he's telling them, that the weight upon his shoulders. And in this distress, the Son of God is looking for two things. In your passage, number one, he's looking for some closeness with friends. And number two, he's looking for closeness with his father in prayer. So he's got a request of his disciples, Peter, James, and John in verse 34. It's a desire for human company and warmth. In his darkest moment, he's seeking support and, and comfort and warm camaraderie from his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, have been with him from the beginning. And he says in your text, stay with me, stay near me. I feel like I'm going to die. I need you. Stay and watch with me. Pray with me. Enter into my suffering, the fellowship of my suffering with me. Help me. I want to feel a hand on my shoulder. You know, there's just the beautiful scene in The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. It just shows you uh, this point. Um, nasty Edmund, if you remember, betrayed everybody and rebelled. He slated to die on the stone table. 
Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus, offers himself in love to save the day and die on the stone table instead of nasty Edmund. Now that night finally comes and the music is playing and you can tell how dejected he is and how sorrowful Aslan is. And he's walking out into the night and Susan and Lucy cannot sleep. And so they come and they, they, they press into him and they kind of just kind of cuddling in. And he just kind of the way he absorbs that, like, thank you. Thank you for being there with me. And they say, you know, can we come with you? And he says, you can come so far, but then I have to do this by myself. But I'll never forget, he says, I'm, I, I should be thankful. I should be glad for your company on a night like this night. And so what he's looking for, and which blows me away, and I always say, Lord, I've been doing this for 40 years. Just show me. And these people have been in, uh, reading through these passages all their lives. Show me something a little bit different. And I was blown away that God, who made us, values and desires and can be ministered to by us. I don't know what it is. I think we just think he's God. He's got this, you know. But he has a heart. He made us in his image. Why can't we understand that he's a person? God is a person. So if God, as a person, now running the universe, he can be grieved. He can be uh, frustrated. He can have a broken heart. It says in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6, when he looked over the world and how messed up it was, his heart was broken. I mean, he can, be, he can marvel at something. He could get, uh, he, he, he can, as it were, be blessed by the praises of his people, by his people's obedience. And so I just started thinking, wow, he wanted their company, and they had this golden opportunity to lighten his load, and instead they added to his burden, you know. But so it started me thinking, wow, I mean, I could be a blessing to God. I could be the one, like, remember when Jesus was, and I know I'm making this point a little longer, but, um, you know, when Jesus is doing his ministry, uh, he tells this Roman soldier, Roman soldier just says, my servant is near death. Uh, come and lay your hands on him and he'll be all better. And, and, and um, Jesus says, I'll go to your house. And then this guy changes his mind and says, you know what? Just say the word. You don't need to come and lay your hands on him. You're the son of God. Just say it and it'll be fine. And Jesus goes, what? Look at this guy. And it says he marveled. He was astonished. He was encouraged. And so just wanting to encourage God to say, I'm sure there's a lot of things in this world that, that break his heart. It's a bummer today. But you know, in my little corner of my world, I can do and say things that bring him joy that, that kind of lift his heart a little bit. You know how that happens when somebody will come by and they don't even know they're doing it and they say something sweet or they compliment or they acknowledge something. And, and just how it just, if they only knew what you're going through and they don't and, and, and it just lifts you. And, and I just say, well, what, what an, uh, an awesome opportunity. You know, so when we reach out to the lost, when we speak truth and love, when we comfort people and spend time with the Lord or worship with all of our hearts, and these things are ways that we can minister to the Lord. And so that's what he was looking for. And by the way, uh, they dropped the ball, but you know, there's redemption for these guys because later when they get filled with the Holy Spirit, they're gonna make up for lost time. And so give them a couple months and some power from the Holy Spirit, and uh, they are going to turn the world upside down, and that's going to make the Lord very uh, happy. And so moving on here, the second thing Jesus is wanting is closeness with his father, who he calls Abba, which means dad. Now, nobody ever called God dad in the Old Testament, 
And so that unraveled my heart too, because he's saying, listen, this is important. This is freaking me out. This is something I really don't want to do unless you really want me to do it. If there's no other way, dad. And so here's this sweet word that he's been using from eternity past. And he looks up. I mean, I'm a dad. I'm a grandpa now. When that kid who's in trouble is, is seeing and he's terrified and he's going to use the D word on me and look with those tears and look at me like, Dad. Oh, wow. And the dad says no. Dad says no because of you and me. And so he's, here's what he's saying. In light of your omnipotence, Father, uh, you can do everything. Nothing, there's nothing you can't do. All things are possible for you. Uh, you are the Lord. Is anything too difficult? I know you can, but will you? Does it fit into your plan? Because that's what I want. And here's what one writer said. Here before you, Jesus defines faith. What faith means. The ability to request openly another destiny than the one God chosen, but ultimately submitting to God's will, whatever this may involve. In other words, to be able to say, I don't like this. I don't like how that, I didn't ask for this. Whoa, wow, I want this to change. And I don't want this to be my destiny. I want you to change it. And maybe three times and an extended amount of prayer. But then you say, but you know what? You may want to use it. So you give God the option of saying no instead of an entire movement that does something like this. One writer said, what is incorrectly called the word of faith movement would be better described as the word of folly since it demands from God what it wants and doesn't want without the caveat that allows God to do otherwise and tell them, no, you're going to have to suffer through this because I have a plan and my grace is enough. You see, let's just not say that Jesus was lacking faith here, all right? Jesus said, this is something I don't want to do. It terrorizes me. But if you want me to do it, done. That's the way we should pray. And that, my friend, is the definition of faith. Now, why is Jesus terrorized? Is it the mocking, the injustice of it all? They're going to slander him all night long. The thugs, the paid assassins that they were, they're going to get up and give false testimony. He said we should stop paying Caesar taxes. What? He said just the opposite. He said he was going to destroy this temple and all of that. Is this what's bothering him? The spitting, the beard plucking, the beating so badly that the Bible says you couldn't recognize him as a human being from the swelling. The crown of thorns, I can't imagine that. The flogging, and then six hours nailed to the cross. That's not why he's terrorized. People are tortured and martyred. That's not, that can't be it, isn't it this? He who knew no sin, the sinless one, He's the second person of the Godhead. He has, created, he has never committed a sin. He asked the Jews, which of you can convict me of one sin? He never committed a sin. And now he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf to make us right with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. What's terrorizing the Lord is the sins of the world being placed on him. That every wicked deed from the dawn of time, from Adam all the way until the last Gentile gets saved, placed on him, becoming him. Think of the worst kind of vilest sin in the world that was laid on him. He had to become it. Galatians says he became a curse for us. You know what's terrorizing him? 
what he said on the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? That's what terrorizes him. That's what's causing him distress. Every sin on him was laid, every person 7,000 years of people, people, people. And he cries and he asks. And Hebrews chapter 5 says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud wailing and cries and tears to the one who could save him. And then it says, and he was heard because of his, listen, because of his reverent submission. He came under and said, nevertheless, what you will. And here's what he said. No. Now, here's what a no tells me. There's no other way to heaven. There's no good religion. There's no good person. There's no good philosophy. There's no good spiritual path. There is nothing in the entire world because Jesus said, I want you to use your deity, your omniscience, Father, your God. You spoke and the universe leapt into existence. I want you to use the wisdom of Almighty God to search the universe for another way to save their souls. Because if there's one, you'll find it. And then I don't have to go through with this. And God the Father says, searched it. There's not another way. You have to do it. Why? God is just Your sins and my sins and the sins of everybody must be paid for. So he says, the way that my justice works, if you become them and I pour out my wrath and focus down the wrath of God on those sins and pay for them through your death and agony and suffering and that you don't have any sin of your own so you have a life that's worth sacrificing, then I can... Free them because in justice, their sins have been paid for. Their sins have been paid for. And so there's no way he's going to ever hold you to one of your sins because that's called double jeopardy. Somebody paid in full. In fact, that's what he says on the cross. It is finished is an accounting term, which means paid in full. And so there was no other way and the father let him know that. And now we move on. Jesus is praying and his disciples are not. They're sleeping. Then he returns to his disciples, finds them sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you just, uh, didn't you have the strength in the Greek to watch with me one hour? Now he's going to change the focus of what they should be praying for. First, he said, pray with me. Enter into my suffering. Be with me. Watch and pray with me. Now he's like, I come back. I find you asleep at the wheel. Dude, you need to pray for yourself right now. So he's going to say, the spirit is willing, the body is weak. Get up, man. Chew some gum. Turn down the windows. Turn up the radio, you know, (laughs) spiritually speaking, right? One more time, he goes away and prays the same thing. Father, if there's any way, but nevertheless, your will. When he comes back, he finds them again sleeping because it's the middle of the night and they're speechless. And he goes back a third time, prays the same thing and comes back and says, are you still resting? Guess what? Here comes Judas, boys. Get up. It's go time. All right, so the disciples, let's talk about this paragraph. The disciples are dozing and drooling, slumped over, conked out, and perhaps even snoring. I wouldn't put it past them. Now, uh, as Jesus returns the first time of three, he wakes Peter up with an ouch. He says, Simon, that's his old name. That's when he first met him. He goes, hey, your name is Simon. I got a nickname for you. Uh, Your disciple name, your Christ following name is Rock. And instead of saying, hey, Rock, Rocky, what's up? Instead of saying that, he says, Simon, are we all the way back to the beginning and the moment I needed you? The moment the whole, the, 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 the little earthquake underneath the ocean that made the tsunami and the tsunami is breaking right here. I just needed you right here and not even an hour 
can that really be happening? Now, when he says, are you asleep? He's not asking a question because he knows he's asleep, right? It's a rhetorical dig and saying, seriously, (laughs) is this the time for you to be distracted in your life when there's all kinds of people blowing up their lives and doing all kinds of dumb things and abandoning the faith? Is this the time when everybody's getting divorces and, and, and people are embracing a whole different gospel? Is this the time for a spiritual snooze? Come on, man. That's what he's saying. He's saying, how could you be asleep at a time like this? And so, well... Given what's charging up the hill, you know, Jesus knows the bad guys are coming. And so he's going to say, watch and pray, watch and pray. Listen, here's the success. Here's the key, the secret for your Christian life. And if you just do these two things, you'll never fail. And every time you've ever failed as a Christian, it's because you didn't do one of these two things. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Let's talk about this. Uh, (laughs) Peter is so sure, self-assured, that he's not going to deny the Lord, you know? And the Lord told him, listen, buddy, Satan has already said he wants to sift you like uh, wheat. He wants to put you in a little machine and just shake you up and see what the apostle Peter's made of. Sift, 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 sift. Let's, well, we'll get there. We'll, We'll shake him up and see. So you better be watching and praying. So the word watch, it's where we get the word Gregory, the name, right? That's what it means to give strict attention to, to guard something from being taken from you, to be fully awake, sober-minded, sharp, keenly aware. It's the Navy SEAL at his post. It's the Doberman at the gate. It is the doctor listening with his stethoscope. It's that kind of seared focus. And what's so important about watching, if you're not watching, spiritually speaking, you're not going to see the trap. You're not going to see the sin. You're not going to see the temptation. If you're not alert, if you're not having your eyes open, spiritually speaking, monitoring your thoughts, your heart, what's going on with me? Am I playing games? Am I being deceived? Am I growing colder? Am I doing things I shouldn't be doing? How's my marriage? You're not watching. And then suddenly something happens that seems sudden to you, but had you been watching, you would have seen it sneaking up the whole time. He says, watch, watch and pray. If you don't see the snare, how are you gonna steer around it? If you don't know your kryptonite, and you don't know where kryptonite pops up, you're going to blow yourself up because you're distracted and not watching. And so this discernment is what he's talking about. Uh, One writer put it this way. Isn't that how drunks become drunks and spouses commit adultery? Men and women throw away their careers and their families. So-called believers fall away from their faith. And they do it ever so slowly, not paying attention, closing their spiritual eyes, not taking things seriously, texting while the pastor is preaching, (laughs) not guarding their hearts. I threw that in there. (laughs) Not guarding their hearts. They become spiritually drowsy and distracted, careless and clueless about the condition of their soul. And then the thing sneaks up on them, and before they know what's happening, it's too late. He says, watch. Listen to your thoughts. Check out your relationships. Pay attention. You get one life. One life. And your decisions have eternal impacts. And when we get to heaven, every last one of us are going to have this conclusion. My word, life was more serious than I imagined. And my little decisions, Jesus says, I will be talking to you about every idle word that came out of your mouth. 
He's paying attention, folks. He's paying attention. Every idle word, what was that about? It's called not watching. I'm not watching what I was saying. I'm not watching the condition of my heart before the Lord. And so here's the combination. Watching, got your radar on, you're thinking, you're looking, right? And you're talking to him. You're walking with him. This is the winning combination. Let me put it to you this way. You're flying a plane, right? You've got clear visibility and you're watching and you're looking for things like mountains and trees and things like that or bird strikes, whatever, but you're clear. But then you've got the voice in your ear of air traffic control who tell you things you can't know, right? And so prayer gives you the grace to enact the wisdom the desire to change, all kinds of things comes for the prayer. But, but <laughs> he's saying, I cannot help you get around the obstacle if your eyes are shut. And I can't talk to you if your eyes are open, but you think you see something, but I need to give you the wisdom to understand that thing. So watching and praying. That's why, my friend, have a quiet time in the morning, at the afternoon, in the evening, so that you can be watchful. You could be prayerful, and you'll have a blessed life. You really will. One guy came to me with the illustration from this point and said, about watching and praying, he's like, man, I have a drinking problem. I've been doing really good, but I really struggle because on the way home, there's this liquor store. And I've been watching and praying and watching and praying and I'm watching and praying and seeing the liquor store every time I go by. And you know, sometimes I end up stopping and I ruin everything. And then the Lord said, hey, why don't you try to find a different way home? (laughs) And he was like, I never thought of that. And so now... I take a different way home and I don't even think about it. I don't even think about it. Because why? He's watching. He's praying. You know, he doesn't leave it to somebody else to care about his life. In this way, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you'll never have to sin, never have to destroy your life. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to everybody. Everybody thinks, oh, you know, you don't know this kind of problem. Oh, no, 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 no. They're all the same. Same strength, same, same deal. We all struggle. And he says, but God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, every time you have a temptation, it guarantees you that there's a way out every single time. He says, I'll give you a way out so that you can go through it or get around it or abstain from it, whatever it is. And that, you know, God says, look, watch and pray. And we're like, oh, God, I can't see what, you're, what the way out is, you know? Or I, I just can't seem to hear the Lord, you know? Because sometimes he shows you stuff you don't want to see. And that's called going back to sleep and not being awake. All right, we got to finish up. Okay, finishing up here. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appears. He's got the crowds, and they're all armed and ready to take Jesus down, and Jesus get, uh, gets kissed by Judas. A lot going on here, and, and then they end up all fleeing, and uh, we're going to talk about this now. So Judas is betraying. So Jesus was praying. The disciples were sleeping. And uh, Judas, uh, they were doing something better than Judas had been doing. Verse uh, 21, uh, Mark says, it would have been better for Judas never to have been born. So here comes Judas, an arm's length from God in a body for three and a half years. That concerns me, that you can see all of that, hear God, unfiltered God. That's unfiltered, pure God words. See the dead people coming up from, life, from death. 
and be this close to God and experience all that, and it would have been better had you not been born because you hardened your heart. That just says, dear Jesus, keep my heart soft. Amen. (laughs) And so we've got Judas leading the way, but here's what I just see, and I'm just kind of briefly summarize this part here. God's in control, and I like what Jesus does straight off. He just says, listen, what a joke. You guys come in with your lanterns and your clubs and your knives. Isn't that special? He says, <laughs> he says, I was with you every day in the lifetime. You know, in fact, you know, I'm not fighting you. So you don't need your, your uh, swords because this is my job. This is the task I came to do. In fact, he's going to say, you're my captives. That's what he's going to say. I'm in charge as the scriptures predicted. So number one, you see him say, well, you know, you love the dark because that's who you are. You didn't do this during the day because you guys are like little creatures of the night. As the scripture said, so check, God's in control, not you, and not Judas. So Judas comes over, the other gospel tells us that Judas leans in for the air kiss, right? Because it's dark, they want to know, you know, which one is he? And so he leans in and Jesus says, do what you came to do, friend. Again, first at the table, Jesus tells him, go. Jesus is in charge. Judas isn't in charge. Judas signed up for the job and Jesus gave him lots of ways to get out and he didn't want out. So the Lord said, okay, I'll use you. And he used him, but he's not in charge. Neither is Pilate. Pilate says, don't you realize who I am? You're not talking to me. I got a lot of power. And Jesus says, actually, you would have zero power unless God gave it to you. So actually, no, you don't have the power. God has the power. And so he's saying, I'm in control. And it gets even better. How many Roman soldiers does it take to arrest uh, a Jewish preacher who, well, happens, <laughs> happens to be the Lord. But John uses the word spira for cohort of soldiers. And let me tell you, uh, I looked it up, 600 to 1,000 men in a spira, right? Now, you know, I mean, he's always walking through the crowd. I mean, one time they sent guards out to arrest him and they come back empty-handed, John chapter seven, and they say, uh, we sent you out. Where is he? You come back to us empty-handed. And they say, have you ever heard him? <laughs> That's exactly what they said. So they want all 600 guys. So the 600 guys are coming up there, right? And so they have the lanterns and the clubs and all of that. And so after the kiss, Jesus introduces himself. And Jesus walks up to them and says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Yahweh, which means I am. So he says, Yahweh. Boom. Have you ever seen 600 dominoes go down? (laughs) What a fun sight that would have been. You know, who's in charge here? The 600 Roman guards? Or Jesus who says, I'm coming to you. Who who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. Boom. It's the same I am from the burning bush. I am. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. And so, yeah. So he's saying, listen, I've introduced myself to you as God, and you have given me the appropriate uh, response of worship. I have told Judas what to do. And now Peter, because he didn't watch and pray, He's not on the same page. And instead of being a help, he's going to be a hindrance. The Lord has said, this has to happen. This has to happen. This has to happen. He has said, God forbid. And the Lord said, the devil's using you right now, man. This has to happen. And even though he's told him a dozen times, I have to die and be raised again, he pulls out a sword to kill one of the 600 soldiers who's standing there. Peter, if you would have been watching, if you would have been praying, you wouldn't have tried to kill 
a Roman soldier who is doing the will of God, as it were. We like your uh, intention. So he cuts his ear off. So on top of everything else, he's a poor aim. (laughs) He cuts the dude's ear off. And Dr. Luke tells you this. Dr. Luke tells you this. He says, and Jesus touched his ear and healed him. I'm like, shut up. I mean, come on, you cut off a guy's ear. It doesn't say, and it lacerated it. It says it chopped his ear off, his head, right? And so what did Jesus do? Like, hold on, guys. (laughs) You know? I mean, he just, of course, he didn't pick it up. He didn't probably grab it, right? But that ear fell to the ground. He cut his ear off. And Jesus goes, and heals him. Now, why didn't one person say, "Um, excuse me, I think we've got the wrong guy here. (laughs) No, 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 no. That might explain why Peter gets away. They all flee and all of that. Now, when you're not on the page, when you're not praying, you're not walking with the Lord, you're just kind of drifting around. You do things like that and cut off the ability for others to hear the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus is so good about restoring our blunders when we're out there just because we're not watching, we're not praying, we don't get it, and we just whip the the sword out of the Bible and we use even the Bible the wrong way and cut people's ears off. And Jesus has got a ministry of healing people's chopped off ears. Because we're out there not watching, not praying, being sensitive and using discernment and wisdom and speaking the truth in love. God is so good and faithful. And so now, you know, we're finishing up. We're going to head into communion for sure. And I just want to, to show you a couple connections here um, with the word Gethsemane. Because the word means, as I said earlier, to crush. To crush and then oil. To crush the fruit to bring the oil. That's what Gethsemane means. And you know he went to that garden because of its meaning. Also, so here's what we've got. So in Gethsemane, they would take the olives. So take a look here. You guys can prepare for communion. We're getting ready for that. In fact, the worship team, come on up here. So here are the olives. Beautiful. How many of you like olives? Raise your hand. The rest of you may leave now. (laughs) Just kidding. So they put the olives into the crusher. Okay, here's the crusher. So a a stone slab would be used. Sometimes an animal, sometimes people would use it to uh, crush the fruit. There's another picture of it. But when Jesus was saying, go ahead and play if you'd like. (laughs) When Jesus was saying, I I feel like I'm being crushed to death, it's because he sensed that the Father had begun to use him as an offering for the sins of the world. And so he started to feel the weight of sins, people. And there are a lot of people think, think of Think of people, here's the, think of people shot here. You know, I, I can't imagine dying for, for two people's sins, let alone the people in this room, or just let's say Santa Rosa, or let's say California. But, let, you know, it just goes on and on and on that Jesus had to become All of their sins, the good, the bad, the ugly, everyone's got sins, and the worst kinds of sins at that. He had to become that. Otherwise, 
The third guy from the right in the black couldn't have gotten saved, but he did. Not exactly this guy, but some of them are getting saved. But they could not get saved if Jesus didn't pay 100% for his murder, murderous past, and everything about him. Now, if you start multiplying things throughout the ages and you start thinking about all the heinous things that have been said and done to children, he's in the garden and he's saying, I'm gonna die because of all the sins laid on him. Every sin on him was laid. Thank you for that picture. And then there he was praying. And that's it. That's God. That's God in a body. Saying, put put all of it on me. And then take out your wrath and a lightning strike of your fury on me so that they can be free and have life. That's a lot of love. <laughs> That's a lot of love. You are loved. <laughs> Your life's going to be okay. You stay close to him. You watch him pray with, with this man, with this God, with him as Lord. You're going all the way to love you like that. And he loved you at your worst. It was when you were weak and helpless and at odds with him. No. How much more will he love you now that you're trying? <laughs> Amen. All right, let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your great love. We can never understand it, Lord, but, and I, I think you even shield us from the worst of it, but we do get an, an understanding of our great worth to you in the cost, the sacrifice, Help us to, next time we want to sin, to think of what you did to pay for it, lest we add yet another weight to your already burdened shoulders back at the cross. Thank you for this time of communion. Would you bless us and reaffirm your love and encourage us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen, amen. Because of Jesus' agony, what he did for us, is the reason why he can keep a promise, never will I leave you or forsake you, because he endured the wrath and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, his broken body, so you're broken. Uh, You will not be broken. You will not have a broken body. You will have a whole body. His shame, so that you'll never be shamed. He was uncovered so that you will never be uncovered. Mocked in agony without God and without hope in this world. He did that, the great trade, so that none of those things will ever have to enter your heart or mind because he's done that on your behalf. Praise the Lord for that great promise. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you because I endured that and I was forsaken. So on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, think of this as my body broken for you. Remember my love for you until I come. So let's eat the bread. After... Supper, which was what, an hour or two before the passage that we spent some time reflecting on? An hour or two earlier, he took a cup after dinner and he said, think of this as the new covenant. The New Testament has come. A new arrangement. Instead of do this or die, it's trust Christ and live. And so he says, Drink this cup and remember my love until I come. Let's drink the cup. Father, may we leave this place and go in peace, Lord, with the joy of the Lord in our hearts. And 
motivated, Lord, to do good works for you as we watch and pray. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.